0: Um, So, what we wanted to start off with, our series that we're going to be starting is called Peaks and Valleys, and as the song kind of indicated, that we all feel like that at different points in our lives. That we're going through, through things that are very difficult, and there are other moments where we feel like we're on top of the world. And we see this in no better place than through the life of a prophet named Elijah. And so, to start off today, we are going to do some background to where we get to Elijah and the context in which he is living. So in order to do that, we have to go back a little ways to fully understand the picture that he is walking into. So, we are going to... I'm going to put some verses up there. You don't need to be savagely flipping through the Bible trying to catch up to everything I'm saying, uh, because we're kind of doing a crash course in the history of the Hebrews. So, to start off with, the the God's people, the Hebrews, um, they get out of Egypt. Moses leads them out of slavery. They get to the Promised Land. And by the end of the book of Joshua, that's where we find them. And we're going to pick up in the next section, which is Judges. So they finally got to this place. God has been leading them. uh, As the prophet Jeremiah says, he led them like a bride through the desert to get to this place, um, depending on God all the way. And they finally get to this good place where the land is easy and they lose sight of who God is almost immediately. So in Judges chapter 2, right, we, we got to the promised land at the end of Joshua, two chapters into Judges, and it says this in verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, or the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger so what we're going to see in the next couple books is that God brings discipline. Like they made this promise to follow after him and to depend on him. He, they've learned all these lessons being in the desert. And then when life gets good, they forget about who he is and seek after other things. And so the next couple books through First and Second Samuel and the Kings is about God bringing discipline, but also protecting his people through servants that are brought up and given his power and authority. And so one of the ways that happens is in First in Second Samuel, uh, it shows the rise of the kings. So before this, it was God uh, empowering a leader to guide them through these different situations in the desert. Um, and we see different judges brought out through this period as well, people given God's authority and power. And one might even argue his Holy Spirit as well. Um, but by the time we get to First Samuel, they want a king because that's what's popular. Everybody else has a king. So we also want a king. And this verse in First Samuel chapter 8 uh, really just shows God's heart breaking over this, that they miss what he's after, right? He's led them through the desert by his word. They've trusted him through all these places. He's raised up specific people to show them who he is. And yet their response is this, that they want a king. And so and the Lord says in First Samuel chapter 8, The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, they've rejected me from being king over them. I can just hear the heartbreak in God's voice here that they have picked what was popular instead of him. And so this lack of dependence on God continues through these kings. It starts off okay because God has raised up these people and they are on the side of the Lord. You start off with Saul, uh, who is from the least of the clans, right, God's picture of Uh, favoring uh, weaker vessels so that he could have the glory, but even Saul falls apart. And then you get David, who is a man after God's own heart, Um, but he eventually will fall as well into sin. Um, So the book of 2 Samuel ends with David beginning to make those compromises and doubting God. We get the story of Bathsheba um, and other events that kind of show the weakness of David. And by the time we get to 1 Kings, it's the end of David's reign. We see some of the consequences of his sin coming about through his son Absalom and the other kings that are to follow. So even his son Solomon, who then takes over as king, has a moment of glory but falls away from God as he is tempted by the things of the world, through women um, especially. So uh, at this point, we then divide the kingdom. Uh, The northern part of Israel separates from the southern part of Judah, under two kings, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, uh, and now it's, they're even more divided, literally instead of just figuratively. And so we see this corruption of the kings, and the, the story of 1 Kings leading up to Elijah is a story of the, really this phrase, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, or they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And it's a lot more that did evil in the sight of the Lord than those that did right. So the, the top part, the northern kingdom of Israel, lasts around 200 years with 19 different kings, all of whom have this phrase, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Judah gets to last a little bit longer, about 350 years, because they have a mixture of good and bad kings. And I think there's a you know, correlation there. You get uh, these phrases with these kings are not very long, so it'll say the name of them, they, lasted this, they reigned this many years, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then let's move on to the next one. But what we see is the good kings, people like Hezekiah and Josiah, they get two chapters in 1 Kings each, because the, uh, the writer wants to explain how good they are, look at all these things they did, they served the Lord, this is how God was faithful, so they get a little more time in the chapter. So that's leading up to where we are. So now we're at 1 Kings, so I want to go into this book specifically of the background of what we're going to be talking about. The interesting thing, to me anyway, about 1 Kings is it's not a history book. But it seems that way. So the reason I say that is who the author is. The author, they believe, is Jeremiah. Who is Jeremiah? He was a prophet, right? He's not a historian. Um, There are plenty of historians from the time who will write about events that happen in 1 Kings, but Jeremiah's not. He is a prophet, right? So it's not meant to be a history book. Um, In fact, he even often references throughout 1 Kings, he'll talk about a guy, and then he'll say things like... uh, uh, if you want the whole story, read this. So, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 41, he talks about Solomon for a little bit. And then at the end, he says, As for the events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed, are they not written in the book and annals of Solomon? Like, if you want the full story, there's other history books you can read. We're not doing that here. And so we see that throughout, that he's not really concerned with the historical significance of the king's He's just getting to making a point by bringing up who all these people are. If you want the full story, read them somewhere else. The other thing we see that it's not really a history book is that he dismisses all these political achievements of the kings. So even though all these people are bad, they're they're spiritually bad. They're not necessarily bad politically or economically. And the reason we know that is from other sources, non-Hebrew sources, that wrote about these kings from this time period. So one example is a guy named King Omri from the northern kingdom. And this thing here is called the Moabite Stell or stone. Um, And it was discovered. uh, And it is a Moabite source that talks about the kings of Israel. And how impressed they were with this guy, King Omri. Uh, He conquers uh, the, the Moabites. He makes Samaria the capital city. He improves the economy. He rebuilds some other cities. And he's a pretty impressive guy. And so the Moabites write about him in this stone. However, when you look at First Kings, it basically just says, there was a king named Omri. He did more evil than all those who were before him. And that is it, right? He doesn't talk about all these political and economic achievements because, again, Jeremiah's writing it. He's a prophet. He's not a historian. So he's not going to include those things. What's interesting is what he does include is where he focuses on the words and actions of the prophets to these kings during these time periods. So, I'm just going to try to say these names the best I can. But prophets like Ahijah, Shemaiah, Micaiah, Jonah, Isaiah, Huldah, Elijah, and Elisha are all throughout this book, talking and trying to turn these kings away from their evil ways. And so, if it was written by a prophet and not a historian, the question we then have to ask is what is the purpose of the book? If it's not a history book, what is it supposed to be? So, I'll follow that up with, what is the job of a prophet? What does a prophet do? Warns, Warns of things. It makes Proclaims things, right? Relates a, from God. relates a message from God. Right, so that's what we would see if it was, was really was Jeremiah, a prophet, writing this book. And that's kind of the idea, right? He says, these are all the th- evil things we've done, people have done, the kings have done. And these are the good kings. Let's spend time talking about how they sought after God and followed after him. And thinking about when Jeremiah is writing this, it is at the beginning of the exile. Now, remember, we talked about Ezra last year uh, and how they were returning from exile. This is the very beginning when they're about to go into exile. So it's almost as if Jeremiah is writing this book to say, you want to know why we're in exile? Let's look at our history of all the things we've messed up on. Um, and this is why we're in the state we're in right now. And so he's recording all the problems of these kings, how the prophets tried to warn against it and say, "Don't you know, turn her back, go back to God, and they didn't, and this is why this exile is happening. So that's something to keep in mind as we're reading through this story is that it is a warning and a reminder to people of God's uh, discipline and his wa- wanting for people to come back to him, right? But it's also a picture of God's Hope for redemption, that even though these people are corrupt and the kings are evil, God still wants His people to come back to Him. Throughout this book, it's really cool to see this line show up uh, frequently, uh, where God says, "Even though these kings are evil, I made a promise to David that his line would endure." And so, one example is in First Kings chapter 15, verse 4, where it says, "Nevertheless, for David's sake." The Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him by making Jerusalem strong. Like, God still wants his people to come back to him. And he's not going to wipe out the line of David. And that continues through Jesus, <coughs> but he comes through that line. Um, so despite the corruption and the evil of his kings, God still has a hope that his people will return to him. So, let's talk about this for a little bit. So, with a couple people just to turn near you for a minute or two. Um, how have you experienced God giving you a warning, either like we just talked about, or how have you seen God keep his promises to give grace and redemption? All right, so just in your own experience in your life, turn to somebody near you, chat about this for just a minute or two. All right. So the next thing I want to set up for us is who the king is. We talk about this line of corrupt kings we get to now the story where Elijah begins to enter the scene. So who the king and queen are that he's going to face off against. And what we see is each time one of the kings is mentioned, it says he was more evil than the king before him. And So we really get the cream of the crop of corruption when we get to this guy named Ahab. Uh, So here are some interesting things about Ahab and what made him such a corrupt king that Elijah would feel the need to come off his mountain and to come deal with the people in the valley. So uh, King Ahab, so first of all, he married a woman named uh, Jezebel, who is the daughter of the king of Sidon, uh, which is part of the Phoenician Empire. So the Phoenicians were traders. They lived all along the coast, but they had major cities in Tyre and Sidon and Byblos, uh, which, as a side note, Byblos is where we, they uh, developed papyrus and paper, which is where we get the word for Bible from because they developed paper. But that's that's for free. So, um, the queen, uh, king of Sidon has a daughter, and his name is Jezebel. And he was, his name was Ethbal, and he was a priest-slash-king, which is called a theocracy. Um, pretty common in the ancient world, in polytheistic civilizations, for that matter, people that have multiple gods. You have a king who's also the religious leader at the same time. Uh, and so he was a high priest, and then his daughter, uh, Jezebel, was raised under this system, and she was a priestess to Baal as well. So, one of the things you'll notice is the way I'm saying that word Baal, that's really the correct pronunciation. We've said Baal uh, in the anglicized way of saying it. I might flip between the two, but that is uh, the correct pronunciation. And what we think, we recognize is that their names have the word or the name for their god Baal in their name, right? You have Baal and Jezebel because they are owned by that god. Uh, the word Baal Baal or Baal really means possession or ownership. And so uh, we'll get more into that in just a second. Um, but they're so closely related to this other god that their names even contain his name. Um, as a side note, there was one uh, pastor who was giving a sermon. He was talking about this. I just thought it was funny. Um, how uh, in Hebrew, the the name the word Zabel uh, actually means dumb. Uh, And so I'm sure the Hebrews had a a good laugh at Jezebel's expense that Ahab has married this woman whose last name means, or her first name means dung. Um, And, you know, it just goes to show how out of touch Ahab is with his own people and his own culture that he doesn't even think that might be a red flag uh, that he shouldn't marry this person whose name in his language means dung. But um, just an interesting point. So Ahab really falls for this girl. Um, It's a political marriage uh, because she's going to unite with the Phoenicians, which would not be a good thing. The Hebrews were meant to be separate and this kingdom of priests that would be a symbol to the world of how to follow after God, and yet they're now marrying into this political alliance with um, people who worship a different god. So much so that Ahab is going to fully dive into this entire religion uh, and more or less abandon the following of Yahweh. Well, then the other things that Ahab does that really it uh, shows his corruption and his disregard for the word of God, is that it says that he allows the rebuilding of the city of Jericho. Uh, now, under Joshua, when they were going to the promised land, you have the story where they march around the walls of Jericho, and they all fall down, and the, the peas and the slushies of vegetables show up, and, you know, that whole thing. <laughs> um, and the city's gone, and then God makes a proclamation, and Joshua says in verse, Joshua six twenty six. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. the cost of his youngest shall he set up its gates. And Ahab said, I don't care about that. I'm going to rebuild Jericho and just open rebellion to the word of God. um, Or at the very best, ignorance to the word of God. Uh, and what has been commanded. And so it was. The city was meant to be destroyed as a reminder of their dependence on God and this miraculous victory. And so it wasn't to be rebuilt as a reminder of that. And Jericho said no. And uh, Ahab said, No, I care more about the economic and political value of this city than what God has said. So that's another problem with Ahab's corruption. The third thing, and probably the biggest thing, we see uh, as his going against God is that he completely buys in to this worship of Baal and the gods of the Phoenicians. And so he erects these altars to Baal and to the mother goddess Asherah. So why, why? Like why this shift to Baal worship away from Yahweh? So as a cultural mindset, of getting into the minds of these people, right, they followed Yahweh in the desert. He was a god of provision in the desert. But they're not living in the desert anymore. Right? They're living in this lush, promised land where everything is green. So they have different needs that they need from God. And they, in their minds, that means they should follow a different God. And Baal is a weather God who's going to bring uh, fertility in the ground, in the crops, in agriculture. And as they shift away from following in the desert and being herders and shepherds and go toward being farmers, they start to lose this identity of relying on God for everything because it's so easy. Things just grow up out of the ground. We only need a very specific God for a very specific thing. And so they start to fall away from him. So I mentioned before that the name Baal means master or possessor. And so when it's in Jezebel's name, it's who is the owner of Jezebel or Baal is of the owner of Baal. And so you really see why God would hate Baal or this idea of falling after him, right? These people who were his people, his segulah, his treasured possession have now decided, no, somebody else owns us. We are the possession of someone else. And so they trade their identity completely as no longer the people of Yahweh, this kingdom of priests, but of the people of Baal and the um, followers of this God that owns them. It's also maybe on a more emotional level, uh, hurtful, because the word Baal is also used as a word for husband, uh, often in the, the Phoenician language. And so we again see this picture of, you know, God said, like, I led you like a bride through the desert. You were my bride, and now you've chosen a different husband. So it's almost as if to say, you have cheated on me with this other God. Um, and there's that connotation as well. Part of the the hurt with following after Baal as well is the way that the God demands sacrifices. Just like the Hebrews, they offer sacrifices of sheep and bulls, but in times of crisis they would offer also sacrifice their children to the, the God Baal. And the way they would do that is they'd have a statue like this made of metal and they would heat it up super hot and then they would lay the child on the burn, burning hand, molten hands of this God um, and sacrifice their children that way. Uh, and in Jeremiah, Jeremiah talks about this in verse chapter 19 verse 5 saying and they have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal which I did not command or decree nor did it come into my mind like God is saying I would never ask that of you and yet you voluntarily do this to this other God that you have so bought into and want to be a part of so that's the first that's Baal and then you have Asherah which is the mother goddess which is the wife of Baal Uh, And so they would erect these poles uh, throughout as symbols, and they kind of look like that, uh, to worship her. And now she's the goddess of fertility, of healing, um, and the mother of creation. And so she's all these different things. So her symbol is often a tree, which is kind of what's going on with this fertility pole here, Um, but also a serpent for healing. That's often used in the Greek world as well as a symbol for healing is the serpent. But I think it's interesting, one commentator pointed out that all these things of Asherah as the the tree, the snake, um, this picture of mother of creation, really is a twisting of the Eve story, right, like of this tree and the serpent and the mother of creation, and they've twisted this whole story around um, into something it was never intended to be. And so part of the worship of Asherah as well is, because she's the goddess of fertility, they would have the priests and priestesses do these displays of public prostitution with each other in front of crowds to appease the goddess of fertility. Um, And so this seems like a dramatic shift from what Yahweh was asking of them to do, um, and also a lot more work. But um, uh, from what Yahweh was asking them to do, they have gone way off the deep end. We're into child sacrifice and public prostitution. Um, but I think it's important to note that this isn't an all-at-once thing, that it is a slow fade of compromises they have made along the way. Right? It started with, we are not in the desert anymore. We just need a little bit of help. We don't really need all this devotion to Yahweh. We just need something to get us through our farming time. And they've slowly compromised. Now, we God, did God really say we shouldn't rebuild Jericho? It's that classic lie that... Satan gives at the beginning of creation, right? Did God really say this and they compromise and they build the city of Jericho. Did God really say you shall have no other gods before me and they they start to compromise. And it's a slow fade, right? And so we have to ask ourselves, do we really trust God to provide everything or do we go to what's popular? Do we give in to the things that culture says this is what's really going to solve your problem? So I want us to talk for a little bit about this question. What are the things in culture that we use a value as a replacement for God, that we say, no, that's really what I need, not Yahweh himself. So chow about that for just a couple minutes. All right, so I have one last thing that I want to share. Um, just to kind of whet your appetite for something, uh, we're going to go into more detail throughout as we talk about this. Um, and I just think it's an interesting connection, and just to be mindful of it as we talk about Elijah is that Elijah is often compared to John the Baptist in the New Testament. And so as we read through the life of Elijah and see these moments, I want us to be looking for that connection because it makes it so much richer and so much cooler that God is the writer of this full story of the Old Testament and New Testament together and the connections that are made. Uh, so I just want to highlight a couple things, and uh, you know we can be looking through that as we go along. So I'm not going to talk a lot about Elijah because we're going to get into that. just wanted to set up the other background. So one of the similarities uh, is just honestly how they dressed. Like, John was not subtle about trying to make the connection here. Uh, so in Second uh, Kings 1 through 8, it describes Elijah that he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. But in Matthew, when it describes John, it says he wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle about his waist. And his food was locust and wild honey. Like, you get this picture of this wild mountain man visage and that's the same thing we see between Elijah and John the Baptist probably the cooler connection is this next slide so when you look on a map and I don't think we'd see this unless we understood geography is that the places that Elijah goes to this red line here sorry about the map, this is the best I could find I had to white out all the other spots here is almost the same red line the places that John the Baptist baptizes people in the New Testament right? Um, the, the Elijah moments are the same spots where John the Baptist shows up in the New Testament as well um, so this picture that they are the, this is the, this is who is come to proclaim who the Messiah is going to be the Old Testament talks about Elijah will come back to prepare the way for the Messiah and this is why John the Baptist is that symbol and Jesus makes that connection as well so in a couple places in the New Testament we see that as well the first example um, is when John is first born. In Luke chapter 1, the angel said to his father, Zacharias, said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, you shall call his name John. And you will have a joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He will turn away... He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father and children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And if that doesn't describe the role of Elijah and what he is facing going into dealing with Ahab, it's a perfect comparison, right? This is what John the Baptist is dealing with, what Elijah is going to be doing, right? He's going to be turning the people toward the Lord, right? away from these corrupt things. Jesus continues and actually calls out and points to this in other places too. So in Matthew chapter 11, right, Jesus is saying, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Right, there's, there's a, not a lot of interpretation there, right? Jesus is saying he is the Elijah who is to come. Matthew 17, his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the, the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered them and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you, that well, Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Right? John the Baptist is a picture of Elijah. Okay? And so to keep that in mind, as we talk about Elijah throughout this story, how they're going to be connected. So I want us to, some of us have more... Bible knowledge than others. This would be a good chance to kind of share with each other. Discuss for a moment, how do you think the goals of Elijah are going to be similar to John's missions? And to Kind of talk about what your predictions are going to be. If we know some things about John the Baptist, what does that tell us about what's going to be happening in the life of Elijah? Okay? All right, go. Talk about that
1: for a minute. Cool. Thank you for that, Ross. Um, As always, um, it's so refreshing to sit and to listen and and learn and Drink coffee. <laughs> Be warned. Be warned. No. Yeah, that's right. Drinking coffee for the last 30 minutes. So, thank you, Maria, for your service. Getting, getting that coffee. Um, yeah. So, so it's it's absolutely crucial that we understand the background of Elijah, right? Who he was. Uh, where, and, and 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 really the the background of of God's people up to this point because if we don't understand uh, what I like to to look at you know when you look at the kings it's really this downward cycle right and each king was more evil than the king before him was more evil than the king before him was more evil and 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 so what what we are presented with here about uh, Ahab was. Uh, it wasn't just that he was worse than his father, but he was worse than his father who's worse than his father than his, you know this guy was the worst of the worst right and so this is the one that Elijah is going to come and show up um, and confront with the truth that God has for him now we need to understand first of all who Elijah is though right um, like like who is this guy that just kind of shows up on the scene right um, and, and elijah is a is a unique character there's a very unique um, way in which Elijah shows up on the scene Um, typically a prophet whenever we we hear stories about prophets um, usually we get the background story usually it'll say the word of the Lord came to this prophet at this point and God told him to do this and maybe there was a a part in that process Um, or or maybe he was the you know this prophet was the son of this person who was really important that will tie in some lineage to who that person is we don't get any of that with Elijah. Elijah is just this dude that just shows up out of nowhere. First uh, Kings uh, sixteen talks about uh, Amri and how horrible he was, and then it talks about Ahab and how horrible he was, and all the things that he did. And then seventeen just starts with now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tish, right? No, no classification of of like what his credentials are. Um, no understanding of any of what his calling to being a prophet was he just shows up on the scene right and and I think there's a few things we need to understand about that um one of those is that um Elijah just abruptly shows up right he he abruptly shows up and the only thing we get is that he was from this place called Tish right Elijah the Tishbite now does anybody know where Tish is no. any guess Great. Well, you guys are just as smart as all the scholars are out there today, because no one really knows, right? Uh, scholars still can't tell us where Tish is today or where it was. Um, we don't. We don't have any idea. And I think that was intentional. I think that was intentional, was to say that you know what? This guy was really a nobody, from nowhere, right? He he was a nobody, right? We get nothing about his his story. Um, in fact, one commentator says it this way: it says suddenly, with an abruptness, the mighty figure of Elijah the prophet impetuously shows up and bursts onto the scene like lightning uh at midnight, right? We just get this guy who just shows up out of nowhere, and what does he do? He goes and confronts this king, right and I think maybe one of the things that we need to glean from this is that there was nothing necessarily special about Elijah. And he didn't come from anywhere special. Now, we do know a little bit about Gilead, the, the land of Gilead. Uh, it, was, it was properly known as the Rocky region, and it was just east of the Jordan, right? And it was really an, an open, open desert kind of area, very mountainous. Uh, it was really a, a wilderness, and really what was, what was a, a place for the those that wanted to get away from society, um, we could say that Elijah was a backwoods kind of person, right? I heard one guy say that uh, if, if we were to look at him today, Elijah would be the guy who showed up in flannel and is probably missing a couple of teeth, um, right? Like he's just kind of this backwoods boy that just shows up with this message, right? Um, and I think in our culture, in our community, we can relate with that, right? He probably would have come from somewhere like Franklin County, the backwoods of Furham, or, or, you know, somewhere down in the holler, you know, like this is the guy, Um, and there was no it wasn't that he was from this prestigious place it wasn't that he was from say jerusalem or one of these major areas right he was a nobody from nowhere and yet i think there's a lot that to be said about that i think there's a lot to be said to say that you know what in god and his sovereign plan of who he chooses to use and how he chooses to use them god tends to pick the nobodies from nowhere doesn't he We were talking about this in our life group this week. But if you look at the significant characters in the story of the Bible and you trace back their life before God used them in powerful ways, most of them were nobodies from nowhere, right, as we we think through that. And I think this is just another picture of God using a nobody from nowhere to do something incredible, Um, to do something incredible. In fact, um, Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians, uh, verse 26, he says this, and I think this is, this is important. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth, but God. right? Let's just stop right there. right? It's not about you. It's about what God's going to do through you and in you. right? And I think that's a message of, of what we hear. It's not that Elijah had this pedigree or that he was this important, significant person. But the significance was that but God was going to use him. But God chose to use what is weak in this world, to shame, the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world. Even things that are not <clears throat> to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who, because, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let no one who boasts, or let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right? I think it's that idea of that when God uses these weak vessels right, and does something tremendous and amazing, there's no way we can give the glory to anything but, but to God. right? There's no way that we can boast in anything but what he's done. And I think we see that in Elisha. We're going to read over the next several months some incredible stories of, of some, some powerful moments that God uses in, in the life of this guy, Elisha. He's going to call fire down. He's going to bring the dead back to life, right? He's going to miraculously multiply things. But yet at the end of the day, when we look back at Elisha and how we get nothing about who he was, all we can say is that God powerfully used that man. And wouldn't that be our, shouldn't that be our heart and our testimony as we enter into this study, right? As we enter into to understanding the life of Elisha, who he was may it be said of us in the same way that God would use us in powerful powerful ways and you know I I think that's why of all the Old Testament prophets I think that's why Elijah is mentioned the most I think Elijah is the most relatable to each one of us right and and James writing in James chapter 5 picks up on this Right, He notes, look what he says. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. and He prayed fervently that it may not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Right, And I think that's, that's what's so captivating and why what draws us in so much to the life of Elijah is that, you know what, he's a guy just like us. Right, There was nothing special about him. He had the same nature as us, the same struggles that we have. And yet God used him in so many incredible, powerful ways. See, I think a lot of times uh, what we tend to do is we tend to distance ourselves from these, these characters in the Bible and these and these what we would consider heroes of the faith, right? And we think in our minds, like, man, I could never do that. I could never cast out a demon. I could never bring somebody back to life. I could never do this or do that, right? And we distance ourselves. But what we see in the life of Elijah is that he's a guy, when we're going to see he's a guy just, like you and me. And God's going to use him in a, in incredible, powerful ways. Now I think also a testimony to who Elijah is, um, and, and we will pick up on this, um, we'll probably come back to this from time to time, is just what Elijah's name meant. Right? In 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 the Hebrew world, uh, we didn't just pick names because they were cute and we really liked them or, or whatever. But but the names that that were chosen, right? Those were names that had some significance to them, right? Um, there were some names that had some meaning to them. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know about, like, your name and, and where that name came from, if, if there was a significant family connection to that. Um, I've, been, I've been blessed to have a very unique name, um, which over the years uh, I've come to appreciate more and more. When I was, when I was younger, I was just like, oh. and they would be like, Rusan. Rustin, Justin, Russet, Roscoe. I mean, I've gotten called all of those names, right? Um, but I've come to appreciate that name, and I've come to appreciate it because in, in my family, that was two of my uh, grandparents, uh, my grandfather and my great-grandfather, it was part of their names put together. Um, and, and so that's been significant for me. But, but when we look at Elisha and his life and who he was, um, we're going to see that his name was even more significant. Um, so Elisha's name, the, the, the first part of his name, the E-L, um, is a short, short abbreviation for God, the name Elohim, right? So a lot of times they were writing, they would just write the word L. And the I, um, in the Hebrew language, shows possession, belonging to. And then the Jah is, is the short abbreviation for Jehovah, right? Or the, or the word Lord. So, so when you put Elijah's name together... My God is Jehovah or my God is the Lord. And I think that's significant to understand what God's going to call Elijah to. God's going to call Elijah to go and do some things that no mere human could do. And if Elijah doesn't put his faith and his trust in God to come through and if God doesn't come through for him in those moments, Elijah's going to be toast, right? He's not going to make it. But it's only through relying and trusting on his God, the Lord, the all-powerful God that's going to get him his life. In fact, uh, one, one commentator said it this way. He said, appearing at the great crisis of the conflict against the sensual and degrading Baal worship, he, Elijah, is not a teacher or a lawgiver or a herald of the Messiah, but simply a warrior of God, bearing witness for him by word and by deed, living a recluse life, um, and then suddenly emerging from it again and again to strike some special blow, right? Elijah kind of becomes this warrior prophet um, that just comes at these moments, right? Uh, as, as the nation is turning away from God, um, and just comes and strikes right at the heart of this false god that they keep worshiping. Um, and God continues to use him throughout that story in powerful, powerful ways. And I think if Elijah didn't believe and didn't trust that God was going to come through, I don't think he would have done and and, and wouldn't do the things that God has called him uh, to do and the things that we see. And so we're going to take, uh, like I said, the next couple of months, and we're going to dive deep into Elisha's story. Um, and, and, and one of the things that, that I hope that we will understand as we're going through this is that we, just like James said, we are going to find so many areas in our life that we're going to relate to Elisha. Um, and the reason that we're calling our series Peaks and Valleys, right, is because what we're going to get as we read through the story of Elijah is we're not going to just get this cutesy story where everything turned out really well for Elijah, right? In fact, we're probably going to read more stories where Elijah was going through hard things in life than, than, these, than these great moments. Um, and, and I think what we tend to do sometimes when we jump through scripture and, and we just kind of out stories, uh, really powerful stories that we like to preach on on Sunday mornings, is that we miss some of the other real stories in the lives of these of these characters. And so as we go through, we're going to be intentional not just to point out these peak moments, right, where, where we all know where Elijah calls fire down or where, God, where Elijah uh, brings someone back from the dead, right? We're not going to just pick out those moments, but we're also going to pick out those moments where Elijah was depressed and he was on the run and he was asking God to end his life Because what I know about life and what I've experienced in life is that life is full of both peaks and valleys, right? And and I think we're going to find tremendous encouragement in the areas of of not just the peaks of Elijah's life, but also in the valleys and those low things that he goes through. And I think one of the questions that we we need to ask ourselves um, throughout our time together in this study, right, it's what do we do in those peaks? What do we do in those valleys? Right? In those peaks, when everything's going great and we're on top of the world and life is working out the way that we had hoped that it works out, what do we do? Do we still look to God to provide everything? Are we still dependent on him for everything? Or do we say, you know what, God, I'm good. Right? I got it on autopilot. Things are going really good right now. So I'm just going gonna, gonna to do me right now. Um, and when I get back go, going down one of those valleys, I'm going to, I'll dial you up then. Right? Then what happens when we are in those valleys, right? In those low places of life? Do we look to God and do we blame God and say, God, why would you? Right? Not forgetting the peak that He just had us on, but yet we look more in the valleys and say, God, how dare you? Why would you not? Why would you allow this? I think what we're gonna find um, is that hopefully that we'll come to understand that God is still God in both the peaks and the valleys of life. Right? Both the peaks. And the valleys of life. Uh John Wooden, uh, the the uh, UCLA basketball coach said this. He said, Life, uh, all of life is peaks and valleys. Um now I think that's where the end of the, the wisdom goes, because he says, Don't let the peaks get too high, don't let the valleys get too low. And I think that's I think that's worldly wisdom that says that, right? Because because we know in 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 life that God's gonna there's gonna be times that things get really, really high and things get really, really low. Um, But I think what what we need to glean from this is that we're all going to experience peaks and valleys in life, right? Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter how wealthy you are, doesn't matter how poor you are. We're all going to experience peaks and valleys in life. But yet, our perspective in those peaks and valleys is going to determine how we view our future. Um, And so, as we dive into the life of Elijah, uh, I think it's going to be encouraging. Now, let me just throw a question out to you, and, and we don't have to get into groups. So I just want you guys to kind of give me your feedback. Um, do you find that it's harder to run to God in those peak moments or those valley moments? What would you say, like in your life experience? Peace. 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 Everybody's there, right? Which is crazy, right? It's harder to run to God when there's peak moments. Why? I'm not focused on God then. Right. What happens in the valleys? What happens when we hit rock bottom? We have nothing else. Right. We, there's no doubt we need help. We come to the end of ourselves and we need help. And so what I would encourage us to do um, as we study through this, this, this go-round, um, even in those peak moments of Elijah's life, right, for us to lean in and glean, even when God calls down fire, God does these incredible things, to look at how Elisha responds in those moments. And we're going to see that he responds with dependency and gratitude even in the midst of those peak moments. Um, I think all of us probably would say, you know, those valley moments are really easy. Uh, Not easy, because we we do wrestle and we do question. But it's easier to to see our need for God in those moments. Um, And so for us, I would just encourage us to glean from the life of Elijah in those peaks and valleys. And so our bedrock principle, as we go throughout this this time together, um, kind of the lens through which we're going to look at uh, these peaks and valleys in the life of Elijah is the fact that, you know what? we're going to, just like Elijah, we're going to have peaks and we're going to have valleys, but yet in the midst of all of those, God is still God. Right? And I want us to ask that question as we enter into each one of those stories, is God still God? When I'm on top of the world and things are going wonderful and great and I have everything that I want, is God still God? Am I still thanking Him and grateful for what He's doing? When I'm in that valley and it looks bleak and I don't see much hope, do I still trust that God is still God? both of those so that's our that's my my hope as we enter into looking at the life of Elisha and then finally and, and this is something that we always want to be able to do so we always want to point people to Christ doesn't matter if we're in the Old Testament the New Testament wherever right and so as we as we look at the life of Elisha and we look at all the incredible things that we he did right I think we also need to be aware that Elisha is still pointing us, just like John the Baptist was, is still pointing us to a need for something greater, right? Um, and so as we go through this time in the life of Elijah and see all that he does, um, and and we go through the peaks and valleys of life, right, for each one of us to realize that the foundation, right, the thing that we need more than just the answer to that circumstance, the more thing that we need more than just... Uh, God to provide for us, right? We're going to see stories uh, coming up next week where, where Elisha is literally in the wilderness and God sends birds to provide food for him, right? But for each one of us in our life, the thing, there's one thing that we need, even more than food and water, we still need a Savior, right? Right? And I think, I think we missed the whole point of what Elijah was doing. I think we missed the whole point of, of even the story in the Old Testament if we don't understand that at the, at the end of the day, the greatest thing that the human heart needs is a Savior. And so as we enter into this, I would just encourage you, like, like if, if you're not in that place, um, if you've never taken that step of putting your faith and trust in Jesus, like that's the first step, right? Uh, that's the first step is, is, is in order to go through these peaks and valleys of life, is to have that relationship with Jesus, right? That's the difference maker for us. Um, you know, we're all going to go through hard, hard things in life. We're all going to go through peaks and valleys in life, um, but being able to to go through those and and having a relationship with your Savior makes all the difference. And I think I think we would we would miss uh, the whole point if we didn't point that out in the very beginning and so uh today what i want us to do is we're gonna we're gonna wrap up we're gonna sing a song uh to close us out we're gonna sing a song uh oceans which i feel like is just a uh, incredible uh words put to music for for this experience of trusting god and am i going to trust god when things get rough and when i don't understand uh, the journey i'm on in life um and i would just encourage you if if You've never taken that step of putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Like, please come talk to me. Uh, come talk to somebody else. We'd love to pray with you. Uh, walk you through that process. This isn't a journey that you're going to go through alone. It's not a journey we want you to go through alone. Uh, we want to come around you as your church and walk through that with you. Uh, but I would also say today, like, if, if you're feeling like, you know what, I'm, I'm really on on one of those peaks or those valleys, and I'm, I'm really struggling right now, where maybe things are great and I acknowledge that I'm not trusting God because things are smooth and easy and I've kind of got away. I would say this morning would be a great time to make a recommitment, right? Recommitting yourself to be dependent on God, to trusting God to meet those needs. And I think what you're going to find is, is that you're going to be greatly encouraged as we continue to study the life of Elijah. Um, one last thing, practical thing I want us to do as well, uh, Chad's going to hand out some uh, these little charts, and, and these, are, these are helpful, and these are going to be helpful throughout. I apologize for the printing. Uh, my printer and I have a strained relationship right now, uh, so much so that I went and bought a new one yesterday. So uh, coming in the future, we'll have much better printed pages, but um, what this is is just a chart of your life, right? Um, and one of the things that's important and one of the things that's helpful and, and really eye-opening sometimes is to be able to look at those peaks and valleys in your life. Um, and so what I would encourage you guys to do is sometime this week, uh, take a couple minutes, maybe, maybe longer than that, maybe an hour or so, and to just, to just plot out what are those peaks and those valleys in your life, right? What are those, what are those peaks and valley moments of your life? right? Um, both both from, a, um, both from an emotional uh, life situation standpoint, like, like big things that have happened in your life, big struggles you've gone through, but also through, also through spiritual moments. So like that moment that you put your faith and trust in Jesus, that better be a peak moment in your life, right? Um, but chart those things out, because I think as we come back to this throughout our series, it's going to be helpful to see those moments that, that God used uh, in powerful ways in your life. Um, And so that's kind of your homework, if you would, for this week. Um, And and we'll come back to that from time to time as we are studying through the life of Elisha. But I wanted to give you that. Um, Also, I know if if your life group is is discussing this as well, uh, that's something I know like in our group that we're going to discuss throughout our our time in this study as well. And so if if you guys would, let's uh, let's stand. Um, We're going to sing this last song together. Um, I'm going to be up here at the front. If, if anybody needs someone or would like somebody to pray with um, I'm going to be here I'd be glad to pray with you this morning uh, it would be my honor um, but we're gonna sing this last song oceans um, just as a as a encouragement um, and and just hopefully as a reflection of our hearts and our lives um, and, and giving ourselves into following God no matter whether we're going through a through a, through a mountaintop experience or whether we're going through a valley um, right now in our life that we're still going to trust that God is still God. Let's pray real quick. God, thank you for today. Uh, God, I thank you for our time together, God. I thank you for, um, God, just the gifts that you give to our body. God, thank you for Ross and, God, his knowledge and understanding of history and how that can help us understand the story that we're about to study. God, I thank you for the diligence and the work that was prepared to help us to understand that. Um, God, but I also pray at the same time that we would take that same energy and that we would study and we would get into your word and we would, God, through our time together in this series, that, God, we would realize that you're still God, whether we're on the mountaintop or whether we're in the valley, God, the peak or the valley, God, you are still God. So be with us today, God, as we just commit our lives to following you father we just uh, we want to give you all the honor and the glory for it it's in Jesus name we pray amen all right amen